read that chapter, um, actually pick it up in verse 5. We'll read it, pray, and then get into our study this morning. So here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted." And Father, we just thank you for this morning again, Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to come and to worship you. God, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. As we look to this chapter, as we see these things that are written about Jesus, God, I pray that it would just cause us to worship you, Lord, to celebrate you. And God, I ask right now that you, Lord, would empower me by your Holy Spirit, Lord, uh, to speak your truths, to speak to your people this morning. The things, Lord, that we need to hear. And so we thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the title of this message is, But We See Jesus. I mean, I think it was the one phrase that that stood out um, in this chapter. But we see Jesus. And if there was ever a statement uh, that summed up this chapter, it would be that. That we would see Jesus. And I think if there was ever a time that we needed to see Jesus in everything we do and say, it would be now. Now, by nature, we are definitely innately uh, um, self-centered people. I mean, if, if you think about it, in our society, in our culture, there's definitely this push and this need, uh, I think, in us to be seen. To make us the, the focus, if you will. I mean, think about all the different social media platforms out there, right? I mean, that is their main objective um, for us as users, that we would be seen, that we would get tons of likes, that we would be subscribed to, right? I mean, that's, that's the big push. I mean, you look at it. I mean, it is funny. Any, any touristy place, just go through it, or any uh, public event, and you walk by, and you'll see gloms of people constantly doing this. 
you know, all this thing, and you're just like, what in the world is going on everywhere? I mean, it used to be like you would go to a show and you would just anticipate, especially concerts when I was young, you would just anticipate like the show and you stand there and you're just waiting and you're just looking around and there's like this thing that's building. So I love to go to, to, to shows to see bands when I was a kid. Uh, and recently I went to a show with my two sons and it was like the opposite. You look around the room and instead of like anticipating, talking, waiting for that, your favorite band to come out, it's again the constant this and this way and get the, the guitar player's guitar in your background and just all the way around the room were people just on their phones looking and doing and posing. It's crazy. That's, that's the culture. Now, in some cases, right, that can be a good thing depending on the reason or the content of the information that you're trying to get out. But by and large, the images and the content reflect the latter, right? This need to be seen and so forth. And even for pastors, I think, today, that could be a real danger, right, a temptation, of, of getting yourself out there, getting your brand out there, getting known or, or trying to book, you know, those speaking engagements and whatnot. It's just part of what we are. But here's the thing today, as followers of Jesus, how should it be for us? As followers of Jesus, right, not just pastors and leaders, but all the people who follow the way of Jesus, especially, right, in, in the realm of social platforms and, and in just real life, if you will. In the book of Acts, we see a great example of this, right? The apostles, they were noticed. If you look real quickly in, in Acts chapter, I want to say, uh, what is it, Acts chapter 2? Yeah. I believe if you look to October 2 in my notes, I'm like, I usually highlight and underline stuff, but I don't think I did that this morning. But look there in the book of Acts chapter 2. It should be right there. You have this moment where the apostles, uh, Peter and John, are out in the public. They are just preaching Jesus to the masses, just preaching it. And at one point, they get arrested, right, for them, you know, bringing this message uh, to the masses, and they really, they get chided for like, hey, this, I'm sorry, it's Acts, um, Acts chapter 4, sorry, verse 13. And so they get, they get accused, right? Hey, you need to stop preaching this Jesus, right? And as they just, to the scribes and to the leaders and the Pharisees, as they're just preaching it, bringing this message, I love that the response of those guys, of the leaders, once they saw the power in which they were preaching and bringing Jesus, right, it wasn't so much about them being noticed. That's what they were being arrested for, right? They're creating this following, if you will. And that was the reason why they wanted to arrest them. But what happens is they see them and look what happens in verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That was the thing they noticed. In all of that craziness, they realized that these men, these two guys had been with Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, that is our aim, right? To live Christ-centered lives. Why? Well, I believe this chapter here in chapter 2 gives us a big why. That that should be our aim as believers, as followers of Jesus. Right? This morning we're going to look at four whys to make this our aim. And 
And again, so that in our lives, in real life, if you will, that yeah, people might see me or they might see you, but the hope is that when they walk away, man, but we also see Jesus. But we see Jesus, right? And there's four things that we'll look at. One of the big why, if you will. One, he was lower than the angels. Two, he is the suffering captain. And three, just like us. He's just like us. And four, he is for us. We're going to look at that. Those four things this morning and the hopes that we would see Jesus in everything we do and say. So look at the first one. It picks up really in verse 5 through 9. He was made lower than the angels. So you could say that Jesus was lower than the angels. Now, if you think about this, yes, last week's message was Jesus is greater than the angels for sure. Right. But we can't ignore the message that comes across from this. Just as it was made clear that Jesus is greater than the angels, right? We can't ignore the message that the angels brought and together with the new covenant, the new message that Jesus brought. And part of this, Jesus becoming greater than the angels or really greater than the old covenant because that's what kind of the angels represent as well. The old way of the Old Testament, if you will, right? We see that Jesus had to become lower in order to be greater, Right? Look, at, look what the verse says in verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. And the idea is here is that the world to come that we're still anticipating for them, it was the world to come, but really in some cases it's, it's the world that we're in now, the, the world of the kingdom of heaven and earth. And God, looking at the big picture, didn't put the angels in charge of that future to come, right? Jesus brought a whole new way to live, a whole new way to respond and, and, and for us as human beings to worship God. He did away with the old and is calling us to once again, right, to come under this man, Jesus, the one who is greater than the angels, but then also in that same process, right, became lower than the angels. And he quotes this psalm. Once again, it's like you have this psalm, chapter 8, verse 4 through 6. Those are what those three verses are in 6, 7, and 8. It's actually uh, brought over from Psalm 8. And it's the right of Hebrews, right, saying that Jesus fulfills this very psalm. This psalm of Jesus becoming lower than the angels. Now, what does that actually mean? The, the wording there, lower than the angels, means that it's really for a short time Jesus became like you and me. Lower than the angels in, sen- in the sense of physicality. When you look at like um, just who angels are in human beings, we're kind of on the, we're a little bit lower than them physically. I mean, we saw that last week, right? How the angels are strong and they could cause fear in the hearts of mankind. And so in a physical sense, right, we are lower than the angels in that. And now the writer is saying that Jesus himself became low in the, in the angels. It's another way of saying he became just like us. And that he left the powers and, and the power that we would see in these angels. He left those things to humble himself, to become like you and me, to let go of those supernatural powers for one short time. Right? When you look at the span of all humanity, that he would take these, you know, even to be more specific, these 30 years, if you will, 
and, and, and walk among us and be like us and feel and taste and hurt to be made lower than the angels, right? To taste death, to taste death. I mean, look what it says there going on in verse nine, right? As we look at Jesus become lower than the angels, verse nine says, but we see Jesus, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, right? There was reason and purpose for Jesus becoming lower than the angels. And that whole point, you'll see this in a little bit too, that whole point, the whole goal of that was that he would suffer, that Jesus would suffer, made lower than the angels to suffer by the grace of God. You know, it's really cool that this is actually the first time in the book of Hebrews that we see the name Jesus, that we just see the power of Jesus, his name Jesus, right? No longer kind of, you know, is he talking about God? Is he talking about this Jesus? No, it's clear that this son who he's been talking about this whole time is in fact Jesus. Jesus who, who suffered by the grace of God. Now, when you look at this, the grace of God that he speaks, not just that he's talking about, you know, we would see this definition of grace as what? Anyone, give me an, 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 a, a definition of grace. What's, what's your known definition of grace? Anyone? Yes, ma'am. Unmerited favor, right? I love that, right? We've all recognized, we've heard that before. Unmerited favor, right? But this definition goes even further than that. The grace of God that, is, that the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about, it's this. It's, it's God confronting human indifference and rebellion, right? And with that, having an inexhaustible capacity to forgive, Right? In other words, it's Jesus knowing exactly, lowering himself, letting go, right, in a physical sense of his godhood to come to humble himself, knowing that we as human beings would continuously be rebellious. And in that, that he knowingly and willfully knowing that he would continually forgive and forgive and forgive to combat our rebelliousness. It's a pretty intense thing when you, you know, it's sometimes, you know, when you get involved with somebody or you get into a relationship with somebody, you know, maybe you're in that courting time or whatnot. And then you're like, whoa, this is a little bit heavier than I thought. And you're like, maybe it's, you know, I'm not ready. It's, it's not you. It's me. I'm not ready. And then you, you back out of that relationship. Well, in this, this way with Jesus, it's like, no, he knew exactly what he was getting into. And he saw the worst of humanity and was still was willing to pursue that relationship. That's what he's speaking about here. And that by the grace of God, that he might taste death for everyone. God made him a little lower than the angels for the whole purpose of tasting death for me and you. Now, when we think of the word taste, it's not like, you know, in the sense that he took a sip of coffee and it's like, oh, okay, this tastes okay. No, the idea is there is that he experienced the painful reality of death. He tasted death, right? The word picture would be like a doctor who's, who's maybe uh, working with his patient and he's like, trust me, this medicine is going to work really well, right? And so the doctor, and you've done this with your kids, right? You're like, look, it doesn't kill you. And you take a little bit of their cough syrup and then you go... <laughs> It tastes good. Here, take it. You know, it's going to make you feel better. That, that's the word picture 
that Jesus did when it says that he tasted death on our behalf, he was made a little lower than the angels to come and experience and to walk through the pains of death on our behalf. Right, having tasted death on our behalf so that we then, as we get ready to, to die, or if we, as we fear death, that, that sting of death would be taken away. I mean, I think about that. I mean, I, mean, I think there's in us, right, this, this deal sometimes to fear death. But now how do we look at death when we realize that there's one who died in our place and knowing that death is no longer just finality, but it's actually just the beginning of something even more. That's what it means for him to come and to taste death on our behalf, right? So that the kingdom of God continues on. He was made lower than the angels, right? He became lower than the angels so that we could see Jesus, so that we would see Jesus, right? That, that's our first why. When, when we call ourselves and we make it our aim to have people see Jesus in us, I mean, I like to look at it this in the sense of putting that little nugget in the back of my mind. When maybe we're going through trials, maybe when we're going through times of suffering, that we would in that moment be reminded, man, but we see Jesus and that Jesus tasted death and Jesus experienced those things on our behalf. And so then I too then can endure as a son of God that people, as I go through this life, that people, hopefully, God willing, could see us and be in that same category. Man, I see Jesus, right? He was made a little lower than the angels. Look at the next thing. Two, he was the suffering captain, right? For verse 10 says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's like as we go through these verses, God is peeling back. He's like giving us the behind the scenes of what it meant for Jesus, for for the Son of God to actually become human flesh to actually walk among us and actually lay out the path of death and resurrection for us. It's like giving us the the, the whys behind our salvation, right? Here's the deal. It was fitting for him, right? For whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory. In other words, that we all exist and are created, right, to worship him. Right, Revelation chapter 4, 7 says that by his will and for his purposes, he created mankind. He created us to worship. He created us to be with him and for him and, and to be under. You know, I think it was, yeah, it was several weeks ago when we did that whole 2020 vision. I think that was just part of the importance of talking about worship. Not just worship as we worship with our lives, but actually as we worship, as we gather together and sing. You know, even as I think about, you know, the, the constant, I would say this, like spiritual warfare that happens on Sunday morning. I really do think, and, and, and it's almost like Peter's heart, right? Where when Peter tells the, the church that is suffering there in Rome, He says, my brethren, do not think it's strange as though some weird thing is happening, as though some weird thing uh, uh, is happening against you. But know that it is part of our spiritual warfare. And as they think about 
especially now because this morning we had, you know, the world might call it gremlins in our system, right? But there was such like chaos, if you will, right? For, I mean, I could hear it in my office of just the technical difficulties that are happening. You know, and, and, and I think about it, it doesn't make sense, especially when we spend so much time like figuring things out and, and, and buying newer equipment so that things work properly. But then on a Sunday morning, they don't work properly. And, and you begin to wonder, why is that? Well, it's because I really believe it becomes then a spiritual attack against the church because how much power is there displayed? When you have people coming together singing to Jesus. So why wouldn't the enemy not want to mess that up? Why, why, I mean, there is power when you have people from, from different ages and, and people groups and backgrounds and ethnicities coming together singing, right, songs to Jesus. And then it almost, when you look at this, right, because as people walk in and as we're a, we're a part of this thing together singing, what do we want to do? In the midst of that, we want to see Jesus. So then on a very practical level, it should then squash and put to bed any heart of criticism that could, could creep up. Right, of, well, I don't like that song, or I don't like how that song has a lot of bass drum, or I don't like how these songs are more modern than the songs that I'm used to. All those things are going to change. It's inevitable, right? The church is not going to be singing, you know, and, and, and on the cutting edge of songs that were sung maybe in the 1700s, that they're singing now in the 2020s, and then maybe if God doesn't come back for us anytime soon, in the 2040s it's going to be different. But what is the one constant that remains the same? That we were created and brought together, right, to worship him, to worship him, right? He says there, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus was glorified on the cross through his suffering, and he's wanting to bring his sons and his daughters together that they might experience the glory of God. As we come with one voice to worship this man who has become the captain of their salvation. Or the wording there could be the author or the originator of salvation. See, it's not just the cross, right? In the beginning of creation, he set in motion, right? But at the same time, it was different than everyone anticipated. I think that's why part of why Hebrews makes it such a big deal here because in that culture, right, Jesus' death on the cross was, was weird to them. It, it was distasteful because if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 or I mean chapter 21, that was their mindset that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. Uh, look at this real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. I can... Um, I can read it to you, for you, or you can follow along, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Look what he says there in verse 22. I believe it's part of the, 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 the mindset that would have had them reject Jesus, the Messiah. Because it says in verse 22, 
And this is like the law of Moses, right? Moses bringing out all the laws for the children of Israel. He says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so you can see how the death of Jesus was like weird to them. And like, no, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would he do that? Because their whole idea of salvation was totally different. But yet Jesus, the author of salvation, right? The captain of salvation says, no, this is how salvation will be brought. That yes, I in fact would become a curse on a tree. But I would become a curse on a tree for you to defeat the curse that's on humanity, right? It's where we get, you know, maybe part of that lyric of that song, author of salvation. That's what the word means, right? He is the leader. He is going before us. And what, as a leader and as an author, humbling himself, suffering, right? He is the captain of salvation. And in salvation, man, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. It makes it so clear for us, right? Right, I can't save you, or our pastors can't save you. You know, I know even in the past, it's been frustrating for some, you know, parents in the past who are like, if you could only talk to my son, if you could only talk to my daughter, I know that somehow, some way, it's like, look, I can't. I'll go and I'll share Jesus. But I'm telling you, the words that I have are the things I'm not gonna bring, be able to bring some sort of formula. You keep praying. And I'll pray for your child. I'll pray for your brother or your sister or your mom. But the only thing that's going to grab a hold of their heart is for them to finally see Jesus. Hey, God may use some of my words, right? But that's what makes it even that much more important for whether it's me or for you, right? As, as God gives us opportunities to minister to people, that we bring them to the author of salvation, that we bring them to Jesus because we, you know, our words or our advice carries no weight unless we're pointing them to the author of salvation so that people would see Jesus. Why? Right? That people would see Jesus. Look at the next thing, verse, or, or point number three comes in verse 11 through 15, right? He was just like us, just like us. And look at this. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, right? That's talking about us who are being set apart, being brought in as children of God. He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and release those through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I mean, think about that. He became like us so that we then can become like him. Right? There was no other way around it. Jesus had to come as a human being and to be like us, 
putting on humanity. I mean, when you think about this, again, I really believe it once again speaks to the power of worship and singing praise to him in the assembly of coming together and gathered because we're celebrating one, like John says, right, like John says in John chapter one. In verse 14, right, he is the fulfillment of this and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? He became our brother by, by putting on human flesh. It is, it is the weird thing about the gospel and how it is so different. And why in some cases in that culture, and even in world religions, that it's, it's almost an anathema. It's, it's almost disgusting to some that the main focus of our worship would humble himself and would become like you and me and, and would put on humanity. And not only that, but then even where he originated from, right? Coming from Nazareth and then, and then living in Galilee, living just as the common people. And yet in that, here Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. So we worship a God who is still among us and with us and around us. And so then when we sing, he hears and receives that worship, not just as our savior, as the captain of our salvation, but then even as our brother, right? Now, uh, this is to call Greg out publicly. I don't know if I'd be comfortable with calling Jesus my homeboy, right? But I would definitely be comfortable and privileged that we can call him our savior, but also our brother. And that he stands before God, right? Representing us as our brothers and sisters, right? One with him, not ashamed, right? Not ashamed and looking, even in that humanity, as verse 14 says, that he did that, right? To take away the power of Satan. Right? It's not that he took away the power of Satan to harm us or not to, to sway man. No, those are just the symptoms, right? But he took away the power of Satan to kill him, Jesus. To kill him, right? Through Jesus' death and resurrection, it took away the power of eternal death from Satan so that we no longer fear death. It's just like that little imagery of the doctor, right? He's going, and he's saying, take this. Take this, man. Look as I have tasted it. Now, too, you too don't have to be afraid. Right? As I've taken this medicine, you too, so that you might be made well. It's the same idea here, and that Jesus partook of flesh and blood like you and me to destroy him, to destroy the power that Satan had of death. Right? So that as verse 15 says that through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I mean, I think for many people, you know, there is that fear of death, right? But Jesus takes it. I remember years and years ago, we had a neighbor, a sweet lady. I, I love looking back. I, I, don't, I don't remember any indication ever that this lady was a, a, a believer at all. 
But I remember my mom, who was with this this older woman, this elderly woman, who um, and who she took care of her and whatnot. She was with her on her deathbed. I mean, her family was all out of town and so forth. And I'm not sure why her family didn't come until after. But my mom was there. And I remember the, the, the thing that, that my mom walked away with is it frightened her is that this elderly woman was, was fearful of death. You know, she was on her deathbed, like trying to climb off the bed and was like seeing images. And she's like, no, that man's after me. And she was, it was just this violent, scary thing. And I just think of that, you know, of just, just in the world, how, how the world, we can fear death because, because we don't know what's there. And yet we serve and worship a one who conquered death so that death for us, not because we're any better, but because we've received, because we've called him our savior, right? That when death happens, we don't have to fear because it's simply just a transition. Because as, as, as John in Revelation would say, he's taken that, and even in Hebrews, he's taken that sting out of death. But he had to be just like us. So that even in death, we see Jesus. We see Jesus. And look at the last one. And I think this is celebratory for sure in nature, right? Number four, he is for us. Jesus is for us. And all this, he is for us. Look at these things that stand out just in these three verses, right? For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Look at just six things that really stand out here in these three verses. One, he doesn't give aid to angels. Right? He's not out there to help the angels, so to speak. And you might say, well, that's kind of weird, right? But think about it. Angels serve their purpose, right? They served humanity by serving Jesus. They are servants of the Lord God Most High, right? But what does he do? He came to serve humanity. He didn't come to serve the angels. He came to serve humanity, right? That's what Mark says in, 13, in chapter 10, verse 45, if I'm not mistaken, right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, you know, for all, right? So he came to serve humanity. Look at the third thing. He subjected himself to our human limitations. He subjected himself, right? He lived among us. He hungered. He pained. He thirsted. He suffered. Even just relation, right? Right? When they came to him, the news of his, of his really good friend Lazarus, right, who, who, who got sick and died, what was his response? The scriptures tell us Jesus wept. Just two words. Jesus wept. Right? He subjected himself to our human limitations. Number four, he endured temptation just like us. Right? You think about the wilderness wanderings and how he suffered thirst and hunger and he suffered temptation as the enemy came with the full powers of hell to sway him. Hey, if you are really the son of God, throw yourself off the cliff. And yet he endured all those temptations and he even endured the temptation of withholding himself from suffering. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He suffered on our behalf, and he became our merciful and high priest, compassionate. 
right? And if you think about these six things, this much is clear. Man, He is for us. He is for us, right? Because He became our propitiation. Now, that's a big word, right? Propitiation. But all it means is that He turned away the anger of God by offering Himself on our behalf. Look at Romans, real quick, chapter 3, verse 23. This lays it out really well for us as followers of Jesus, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a, there's the word again, propitiation, right? Or mercy seat. The word picture there is, is um, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant and how you had the two angels and it talks about how there was all gold plated and then on, on the left and the right side of the box you had these angels facing one another and then right in the middle of that you had the mercy seat where they would offer the blood sacrifice there, right? And this would be the thing that covered, that atoned, that did away with our sins. The idea is that Jesus became that offering, that shedding of blood. He became the thing that was put on the mercy seat, right? He became that for us. And so being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You think about this picture here that comes from Psalm 22 when Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? It's in that moment that the wrath of God was appeased, was poured out on Jesus on our behalf. Right? He became the perfect offering, the perfect gift because of all he did. He appeased the wrath of God on sin, dying in our place. Right? He is for us. He is for us. He died for us. He suffered for us. And in all this, we see Jesus as the author of salvation. He was made lower than the angels. He was made just like us and then suffered on our behalf to set us free from sin and death. He is for us. And because of that, we no longer have to fear death. But we see Jesus. And when I think about these four things, right, once again, you put these, so to speak, in this spiritual, you know, box, if you will, in, in your spiritual bank of your heart and your mind. And you're like, Lord, let that be my aim. Right? That as I live and breathe, and as I follow the way of Jesus, that in me, people would see Jesus. That people would see Jesus because of all that he has done on our behalf. Right? He is for us. And, and church, I just want to remind you of that this morning. For anyone, maybe this morning, who's struggling, maybe even feeling ashamed or, or having a week where they just really messed up and you're feeling that weight of guilt, man, you don't have to. You don't have to anymore because he took it, right? And all these things, we can see Jesus and what he has done. And all these things is not surprise, but he invites us this morning to come to him, 
to come to Him so that we can see Jesus clearly. And as this morning, as we get ready for communion, let us do that. Let's come to the table seeing Jesus high and lifted up on the throne, on your behalf, right? He is for us. And let's see Jesus this morning. Father, I just thank you for this time, Jesus, and I come to you, Lord. And I'm thankful, Jesus, for you and all that you've done for us. And God, I thank you this morning that